Hi, you're about to listen to episode 16 of the podcast. In this episode, we explore one of the core symbols of the American dream, homeownership. In the United States, homeownership is a symbol of the prosperity that Americans are promised. It's been a status symbol separating the middle class from the poor for much of American history. Why? And how does one tax policy, the home mortgage interest deduction, play upon our collective dreams of Americanism? In this episode, we talk about vacation homes, reparations, Mark Twain, returns on investments, writing letters to curry favor with racists, and guillotines. This is Robot F. Kennedy. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Nick. I'm excited to see you. So I've been reading about this tax reform bill that is eventually going to come. You know, once the Republicans pass health care, then they're going to turn their attention towards tax reform. And one of the things that they are proposing is not eliminating the mortgage uh, deduction, but basically changing the tax code so that most people wouldn't take the mortgage deduction. Talk to me a little bit about what you've been reading, like what plan you've been reading and any context for that. Because what I had read recently is that one of the frameworks that's been put out, Mm -hmm. is this the Trump tax reform plan that you're referencing? I don't remember if it was Trump's or like Paul Ryan's. Well, no, because the Ryan Brady tax reform blueprint that they published a Mm -hmm. couple months ago reforms a lot of the tax code except it does not touch two of the biggest things. One is the mortgage uh, mortgage interest deduction mm-hmm. and charitable giving deduction. So I'm looking at a Slate article called Own a Home, then you're going to hate the Republican tax plan. Okay. And it does mention, again, it's saying that under the Ryan tax plan, they're not going to eliminate the tax deduction, the mortgage deduction, but they're going to double the standard deduction. Okay. So most homeowners would no longer require the mortgage deduction. Okay. So that sounds kind of in line with what I've been reading and hearing about. But that got me thinking about the mortgage deduction. And this is something that you and I have talked in this kind of a separate conversation, which is like, what is the most conservative thing that you believe in? Mm -hmm. And on my list is eliminating the mortgage interest deduction. Yeah. This theme that we've talked a lot about is so fun. I think about it all, I think about it all the time, mm-hmm. um, driving around, think about you, Eddie, with uh, <laughs> the heart emojis in my eyes. And, um, and I just think about how cool of a topic it is. Like, not only what is your most, for us, because we're fairly left-leaning liberals, um, what's our most conservative policy idea or um, kind of wish list item. But it's interesting, I think, for anybody, right? Like, take a conservative. What's your most liberal policy idea? It's re- it's kind of like this going against the grain for your own worldview uh, talking point. But I, I just want to quickly say that there are pieces of the mortgage uh, interest deduction that are like there's a way you could spin it as conservative and there's a way that you could spin it as liberal. And it's a tricky. It's like a Schrodinger's policy where, yeah. you, depending on when you look, it might be one in one state or the other. In doing my research, I have kind of asked myself that question of like, well, maybe uh, what do I think about this? So we'll talk more about that. But to your point of like, isn't it interesting to ask ourselves, like, what is the most conservative thing that you believe in? I mean, I think that we get kind of bullied into believing that like, you're a liberal, all your views are liberal, you're a conservative, all your views are conservative. And like, I think a very few people actually live their life that way. Like, you know, it's more complicated. And let's dive into that uh, complexity. Yeah, there, there is a uh, kind of a, a trend of ideological purity in right. both parties right now that I think is a little bit 
intellectually dishonest, exclusionary, and kind of uh, counterproductive, but that's maybe a topic for another day. So if you, I've never bought a home, and to my knowledge, you haven't either, but my understanding is that let's say you get a million-dollar mortgage from the bank, then every month you're paying interest on that loan over 30 traditionally 30 year it's a 30 year loan that interest is going to the bank that provided you or the mortgage provider that helped you buy your home yeah you're paying that's the cost of the loan and then every year you get to write off whatever interest you paid on a home mortgage loan up to a million dollars this applies for up to two homes as yeah, well, yeah, which starts raising some eyebrows. So you can write off the interest you're paying up to a million dollars on your first home and on your second home. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, uh, seriously. I've still yet to bridge the, the gap on zero to one. Yeah, exactly. This comes, so I did a little research as to where both these two ideas come from. Where does a home mortgage come from and where does the deduction come from? Okay. Surprisingly, the deduction came first. In the 1890s, when Congress started collecting income taxes, they made it so that you could write off any interest you paid on any loan. Interesting. So from the beginning, they saw that as something that shouldn't be counted against your your income, I guess. I don't know. I don't quite understand the reasoning, but from the earliest days of income tax, any interest, you were able to write it off. I cannot speak for the 1890s or for Congress, but uh-huh. I, th- I think the thinking is that uh, if you're a highly leveraged, sometimes the most productive people in society counter counterintuitively are the most highly leveraged, right? People that are starting businesses, people that are putting children through school, people that are buying um, long-term high-value assets like homes mm-hmm. are economically very kind of productive people, and you don't want to disincentivize that behavior. Right. So if you had an income tax and – Eddie uh, owns outright a large amount of asset. Let's take three people example. We have Bixby owns a large amount of assets outright and Mm -hmm. pays no interest on any of those assets. Eddie um, is uh, a entrepreneurial uh, young man and is highly leveraged and therefore pays a lot of interest Mm -hmm. on his economic activity that he's generating for himself and for the community in the country. And Nick is a layabout who um, doesn't borrow, doesn't pay, doesn't do much, but um, pick uh, apple cores out of trash cans and eat them. Um, (laughs) Ideally, in order of most valuable to least valuable to society, it goes Eddie, Bixby, Nick. Yeah. But in a world where you levy a flat income tax without any deduction for interest, it uh, it advantages Bixby, Eddie, Nick the most, or actually maybe Bixby, Nick, Eddie, right? right? Um, this is hugely reductive, and I'm not an economist. Um, I, so I'm painting with broad strokes here, and if anyone li- is listening that is an economist that um, thinks I'm grossly misinforming anyone, please tell me. No, that's a good point, and a point that we're going to return to, which is the reason you would deduct interest is because those people, you want to encourage them to continue to borrow money because that is stimulating the economy. It's certainly stimulating the financial services sector of the economy. Absolutely. So that's where the deduction comes from. Mortgages are a relatively new, in the last 80 years, the modern 30-year mortgage came about. Before that, before the 1930s, in the old, old days, you bought property in cash. I mean, you couldn't do that now. Like, no one would own anything if you had to buy property in cash. Only the ultra-wealthy would own things. And then 
kind of in an in-between phase in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, a mortgage lasted five years. Again, now it's 30. Back then it was a five-year mortgage, but 50% down payment. You paid interest for five years, and then at the end of five years, you paid the other 50%. Mm-hmm. Then the Great Depression happened, and no one was lending, and no one was borrowing. Or maybe by no one was borrowing, and then no one was lending. I don't know. But the FHA stepped in and created this new product called the 30-year mortgage, which could be insurable. And that, and since then, since 1934, we've basically been living in a world where the 30-year mortgage is standard. You can get a 15-year mortgage, but the 30-year is standard. Okay? Yeah. That's all the history you need to know about the mortgage and the mortgage deduction. One question I have, it's a kind of a chicken and egg question. You were saying that you people bought houses with cash. And to us, that sounds ridiculous. But mm-hmm. I've got like um, I've got some relatives that uh, own a very nice beach house that's worth a lot of money now. It's got it's a beachfront property mm-hmm. um, in Orange County. And it's worth exorbitant amounts of money today. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a nice, sweet beach house. It's nothing super fancy. They <laughs> bought it in 1964 uh-huh. for, I believe they told us once it was like $6,000. Now, admittedly, oh admittedly, there is such a thing as inflation, but relative to the baseline median income, things like housing have been increasing in price relative to inflation at a faster rate. Other things like college tuitions have been growing at a faster rate. Healthcare costs have been growing at a faster rate. Because of the things that you're saying, I believe that homeownership is enough of an incentive because home values over time have risen, even, you know, or rather in spite of periodic recessions. Real estate is still one of the safest investments that that one can make certainly on a personal level. I mean, let's talk only on a personal level, not like, not like, I'm not talking about landlords. I'm talking about if you have money and you can put it in a savings account or you can put it in a house is a far better investment to buy a house. So my question, because there is such a natural incentive to own real estate, why are we further incentivizing it with the mortgage deduction? That's a complicated, it's a deceptively, that's a simple question with a complicated answer, I think. Really? Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I'm genuinely curious because it seems like if we eliminated the deduction, people would still be buying homes. That's absolutely true. There's some data that I saw that pointed to, so the one talking point is that if you eliminated the deduction, it would disincentivize people from buying homes. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no such mortgage interest deduction in Canada. And Canada is a a great um, control group for a lot of American economic studies because it is, even though it is smaller in population, it is kind of culturally and economically similar enough to Mm -hmm. draw comparative uh, um, conclusions. And uh, a paper I was looking at said that Canada has similar rates of home ownership as the United States, and they have no mortgage interest deduction in their tax code. So do you know if they ever had one? I do not believe they ever had one, but I'm not certain. Because the United Kingdom did have one and either have phased it out or are are in the process of phasing it out, which is what I would um, argue for. Not like wake up January 1st, 2018 and suddenly it's gone, but rather phasing it out over a number of years. Because what I've read is that it will affect home prices. That home prices on average will fall almost 7%. So I, you know, 
to protect the value that homeowners currently enjoy. I wouldn't want that to hit them kind of all at once. But I'm going back to your point about Canada, like people are buying houses. People will continue to buy houses. I'm not sure why the government, why we as taxpayers need to subsidize that. Yeah, I um, I somewhat agree. I, I want to give a little more context too to the conversation before we really get into the weeds on that question. But let's put a pin in that question okay. and remember it. Um, some added context I want to I want to just give here so that people have good. Uh, one of my favorite moments from our long meandering last episode was when we both didn't know the proportional um, amounts or values of uh, the healthcare system and the defense oh, right. budget and stuff, mm-hmm. and how eye opening it was to actually see those numbers. When you're talking about the mortgage interest deduction, um, altogether itemized deductions in uh, against personal income taxes account there, it's a big slice. So total, um, it's somewhere between eighty and a hundred billion dollars a year of uh, of federal revenue are not seen because of personal itemized deductions. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of those, that's everything from uh, deducting your mileage when you're a, when you're self-employed or you're a consultant, um, deducting uh, currently deducting your health insurance premiums uh, under the Affordable Care Act. All of those things together are about $100 billion a year of revenue that if those tax deductions didn't exist, the federal government would receive in income tax revenues. Mm-hmm. Of that, about 75 to $80 billion are just the mortgage interest deduction. Yeah. So let's call it three quarters of all of that revenue. 75, 77. I have one number in front of me that says $77 billion. I saw That's almost a trillion dollars. In the yeah. standard 10-year windows of quoting budget effects of mm-hmm. either revenues or deficits, that's almost a trillion dollars of budget. That's about the size, roughly, of the Affordable Care Act, the the changes in the Affordable Care Act to the federal budget over a 10-year window. Every time major legislation is passed, the Congressional Budget Office does a lot of very complicated and nuanced statistical projections over usually a 10-year window. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do longer, but that's a little deceptive because what really ever goes according to plan on, on beyond a 10-year yeah. I would argue that things don't even go on a go according to plan in a 10-year window, and it should probably be shorter than that. But regardless, uh, they do a 10-year score, and that's when you hear someone say, this is a trillion-dollar tax cut. It's over right. 10 years, usually. Right. So um, the Affordable Care Act, originally, the the cost in terms of increased revenues from taxes on high-net-worth individuals and increased subsidies on low-net-worth low individuals or low-income uh, Americans, all told the cost, if the Affordable Care Act never existed, they said over 10 years would be about, I think it was $864 billion. I don't have that in front of me, though, so I could be a little bit off. But my only point is to say that we're in the ballpark, right? Mm-hmm. We're in the ballpark of saying, get rid of the earned income tax credit and you can pay for the Affordable Care Act, which I don't want to go down a healthcare road yeah. yet. Yeah. But it's interesting to see when you're playing, moving these chips around it on a table, what can you buy for what amount of money in terms of national priorities? Sure. I just wanted to bring that uh, little context in. Yeah, I, I I don't want the point to be lost. This is a lot of money. The the number I saw was close to seventy billion dollars a year. That's, yeah, that's in the that's range of what I saw. Yeah. yeah. So I'll return to the question: Why is the government incentivizing homeownership? Do you have any hypotheses you want to throw out first? Because you know me, I've got seventeen. No, go. There's the first one. That's a little. Um, touchy feely and it's cultural, mm-hmm. right? There's this, um, I think ever since the United States was even a, a, a glimmer in the founders eyes, um, there has been, there's a 
kind of not just American, not just British colonial, but European New World idea that the New World is about land and it's about opportunity and it's about economic activity and um, everything from everything from Manifest Destiny to it never happened, but uh, reparation for slaves all the way up to the housing crisis of 2007 to 2009, right, is about this cultural idea or this dream that all a person needs is a patch of land to call their own, a little bit of grass, a little bit of fresh air um, to call their own where, where no one can intrude, where they are the master of his or her own domain. And that is a, a kind of a cultural idea and ideal. Whether or not that's a good idea. Oh, I, I agree that that is an underpinning of, you know, Jeffersonian democracy is you have to own land. The Wouldn't you say that since the 20th century – Car ownership has also been tied up in an American identity. Absolutely. And yet we don't incentivize car ownership. Don't we, though? Like, don't we subsidize the cost of fuel? Don't we pay with federal funds for the highways and roads for people to get from point A to point B? Don't we manufacture en masse uh, movies and rock and roll songs that idealize car driving and car ownership. You're right about the construction of roads and subsidizing of fuel, although we also levy high taxes on fuel, at least in California. Yeah, but that's a state thing. Sure. Um, so my point would be that, I mean, just look at the roads alone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I read an Economist article a few years ago about the uh, interstate highway system. And how when Dwight Eisenhower proposed and it was had, a, had the Federal Highway Act um, mm-hmm. approved by Congress, it was estimated to take 10 years. It was like 1954, 5, 6, somewhere in there. It was estimated to take 10 years and about $10 billion, which in 1950s money is insane. Right. And again, there's that 10-year window again, right, to complete the interstate highway system. It took until 1993, the last stretch of the interstate highway system, and it cost – somewhere between 800 and $900 billion over the course of 43 years. So the, it was not acutely felt that way. Right. And so you can say, well, my dad would say, what a boondoggle. This is an example how the government can't do anything right, over budget, over cost. What's crazy is this same Economist article, and to keep in mind, The Economist is a English, like a British magazine that is kind of a center-right economic-oriented. It's the equivalent, British equivalent of The Wall Street Journal, let's say. And in this paper... They estimated that somewhere between 1.5 and 3% of all GDP since the uh, interstate highway system went into effect can be attributed to the efficiencies uh, to commerce that the interstate highway system provided. Wow. I mean, and that's everything. When you think at scale, this is something that people are really, really bad at keeping in their minds. But let's just go on like a 30-second journey here and imagine this. This is not just the ability for a uh, a young couple to get in their convertible and take a vacation and a road trip this is the um, the consistency of uh, of the size and width and the regulation of distances of on ramps off ramps the widths of uh, lanes that empower the american automobile uh, 
companies to standardize the sizes of their cars. Uh, it, this goes to uh, the, the ability of an interstate trucking company right. to not have to factor in uh, a, a widely variable quality of highway surface mm-hmm. into their costs because if they're dri- if you're driving on a bunch of independently maintained roads, some are going to be uh, better paved than others, and that will lead to maintenance decay on your equipment and right. your inventory. So, I mean, think about just the billions of dollars that are saved in buying new tires for shipping and moving companies and freight companies. Um, think about think about the sub all of the suburban real estate development that was enabled. I mean, you could attribute not a hundred percent, but a, probably a percentage of all American suburban real estate development to the highway system, right? To right. say you couldn't build Whittier, right, out to the extent that it's been built mm-hmm. if you didn't have the interstate highway system. You couldn't build suburban, uh, you couldn't build Naperville, Illinois, or whatever, right? Because certainly you couldn't build in, in LA, at least. We're going to be a little Southern California biased here, but sure as hell you couldn't have Valencia operating as a sustainable uh, community without the without multiple highways going uh, through that area. My point is that there are all these secondary and tertiary and quaternary effects of this huge infrastructure mm-hmm. bill. And so I would argue as a, an infrastructure oriented kind of, I would call myself like a developmentalist uh, in terms of my policy ideology um, that it's, it's gr- it's a bargain to spend a trillion dollars over the course of almost half a century mm-hmm. and increase GDP by 1.5 to 3 annually over that entire time, and who knows how much longer into the future. So how does homeownership increase GDP? So there's this phenomenon that's probably not great, but it is what it is, so let's just be pragmatic about it. And it is the phenomenon whereby most Americans' uh, significant savings or net worth is tied into the value of their home, Mm -hmm. and that some in some economic projections comes at the expense of savings for retirement in financial vehicles like 401ks and pensions. Furthermore, when older generations pass on, a significant amount of of intergenerational wealth is tied up into real estate. Mm -hmm. Now, arguing whether that's good or bad is a very tricky thing. I I'm kind of leaning on the side to Uh, that's not a good thing. Really? Why? I would say that it is a good thing. Because it basically holds a gun to the head of the economy and says, basically, generally speaking, older people own more real estate and older people have more equity tied up into real estate. Mm-hmm. And that's not because they're old and that's it's because of time, right. right? A person that's 65 has had a lot more time to pay down their mortgage than a person that's 31. Mm-hmm. In my view, I take like a very like laboratory scientific experiment worldview, like a, mm-hmm. of policy, which is something that frustrates me about what a lot of, a lot of what goes on in our, in our political culture. To me, it's like, Let's sit down and talk about whether or not gun ownership should be high or low. That's something that on its face, I'm open to having that conversation. I'm open to policy innovation and experimentation. I'm open to multiple states having different policies, but then those policies being looked at, data being gathered, and then everyone coming back to the table a period of time later and saying, okay, did this achieve what we wanted it to achieve or not? Right. And there's this attitude, I think particularly on the right, of we just have these ideas and they're given to us by God or by Thomas Jefferson and they're good. And we don't even need to look at the data because it is that like, this is just the way it needs to be. Right. And you're saying this in regard to the age bias. No, 
I'm saying this that I think there's I'm kind of going on a wacky tangent. I'm sorry, I'll dial it back in. I think that there is an aversion to gathering data and questioning core assumptions based on looking at that data, mm-hmm. particularly on the right, but on the left as well. And it's something that I really hold dear to my worldview is that like I'd like to think that when presented with good data, mm-hmm. I would question any of my policy ideas or almost any of my policy ideas. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that is true for most people in the world, let alone most Americans. And my point about all this with the mortgage interest deduction is that, in my opinion, we should be Republicans and Democrats should be able to sit down at a table and say, all right, what are we trying to achieve here? We're trying to have people's net worth get higher. We're trying to stimulate economic activity. We want people to be better off tomorrow than they were yesterday. Mm-hmm. What if we did an experiment where we phased out the mortgage interest deduction, watched some economic indicators, and if it improved job growth or improved net worths or improved savings or homeownership, then that means that policy is a good policy and it should stay. And if it doesn't, let's repeal it, go back to the way it was and come up with a new idea. But that's not how people think, right? Some people are going to say it's good because it's good and we shouldn't touch it. And there are people that say it's bad because it's bad and we should repeal it. And meanwhile, there's a gun held to the head of all policymakers mm-hmm. by ways of both giant lobbies and a lot of individual taxpayers and voters that say, well, I own my house. I get a huge write-off every year from mm-hmm. my mortgage and deduction. I don't want you to take that away. I don't want you to touch that. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm saying that it's kind of a gun to the head of policy innovation and it becomes almost an electrical, like a third rail right. of, of policy to touch. Sorry for the long rant. but No, it's fair. I, again, I'm just coming back to, I don't understand why we need it. But what you're saying, like, it does do a good on a personal level because each person who owns a home or who has a mortgage gets this money basically every year. If you take it away, those people, they're going to have to pay more in taxes than they currently pay. Sure. I would argue that philosophically, that is okay. (laughs) Because I... I I can go there with you. I just don't understand why the... I just don't understand the reasoning behind it to begin with. Now, I see... Again, I see like for those people, for those millions of people who own homes, like I need it because I have it. But that's not a, like you're saying, that's not a good enough reason to keep it. I I think that's not how people think. There's also some research out there that I'm kind of, I'm kind of sympathetic to that says that it's kind of bad. And I'm not ready to come out and say like homeownership's bad. That seems like a really general and crazy statement to make, but I want to float something by you. Did you read about um, Oswald's hypothesis? No. Okay. So there's a British economist named Andrew Oswald and he wrote a, pretty reputable paper with a couple other economists um, over the last couple decades. And um, the core of the hypothesis is that higher rates of homeownership uh, in a, in any given state or political area seem to be associated with lower levels of labor mobility and less dynamic economic markets and therefore over time higher rates of unemployment. So the idea is Whoa. on a lar- you want high levels of labor dynamism, which means you want a lot of innovation in a country. You want Chicago and San Francisco and Miami and Austin to experiment in different ways on a number of different policies. And the idea is that if someone hits it, like strikes gold, so to speak, with a good policy innovation, the others will adopt it naturally. It's almost like a natural selection effect of mm-hmm. a country, right? But in order for that to be as efficient as possible, if 
Austin tomorrow invents a new energy source that um, creates a million jobs. You want a million people to, in a low friction way, be able to move to Austin in order to participate in that economic development. And over history in many countries, and particularly the United States, as far as I know, this is a very widely studied thing. And it was uh, labor mobility was very high in the 20th century. And a lot of, especially after the Great Depression and in the kind of boom years of the American economy in the 1950s and 60s, you had a high number of people that would move. I mean, in layman's terms, this is you find a job that's not in the city where you live now, and right. you are able and willing to move to the new place to get a ideally higher paying job mm -hmm. that in a nutshell is labor dynamism. And it is good for the country for when job creation occurs, people to be able to afford to follow that job creation wherever it goes. Right. That's so interesting. I just want to say on a personal level, my wife's family came to Southern California from New York in the sixties because of a job. Like I'm not sure that that happens in the same way today for a middle-class family. Right. And the, and the idea that like markets are very efficient when consumers have the maximum amount of good information at their disposal. Right. So ideally, the way it should work is, Eddie, you want to maximize your earning potential and you're, you would theoretically be able to cast a wide net over across the entire labor market that you have access to, which is the whole United States of America, mm -hmm. and say, these are my skills. Where can I, where can I garner the highest wages? Mm -hmm. And a computer goes, boop, 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 Atlanta, Georgia. And Eddie goes, great. And Eddie packs up his life and his family moves to Atlanta, Georgia for this job, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a better life there than you did where you were before, and that's the idea. The problem is that over time, labor mobility is decreasing. We're, this is something that is borne out by the data and that especially in the last 20 years, the, the number of people that are either able or willing, and some of its willingness and some of its ability to relocate more than 30 miles from where they currently live mm -hmm. for an economic opportunity has decreased dramatically. Some of that people say is that the mar market forces of our economy are kind of making them far more local and localized and people are locally specializing in certain things and therefore skills are not transferable to other areas. Mm -hmm. But another one in another deceptive way is that baby boomers are retiring. And when people are retiring, they're no longer participating in the labor market and therefore are no longer able or willing to move for economic opportunity because they're now collecting a pension and they are just chilling out until they die, theoretically, <laughs> broad strokes here. And so as baby boomers make up a larger percentage of the population, they're going to skew that data. So the Oswald's hypothesis is that it's actually homeownership that affects uh, unemployment in these deceptive and long-term ways. So one, when people buy a home, they are really financially and physically attached to that place for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. And they are less able and willing. They have less liquidity at their disposal and they have less availability to relocate for economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. That just makes intuitive sense right yeah. there. But then you have stuff like, okay, those people are now physically tied to a spot. And let's say you're not moving more than 30 miles away from your job, but let's say there's a, um, there's a, there's like a mental radius that a person is willing to stay in their current home, but still work. And so, and, uh, uh, in the paper, Oswald put it at roughly 30 miles, right? The idea is that you want people as close to their job as possible, because that is the most efficient arrangement of resources. Right. But now you've got people that, that let's say average commute distance is increasing to the maximum edge of that, of that mental radius of I'm 
still going to live in the same house. Right. I'm just going to find a better job, but I'm going to drive longer to get there. Yeah. So now you're talking about lost economic activity in terms of commute time. time. Yeah. You're talking about less competition um, for labor resources um, in geographic areas. Another one is, um, are you familiar with the acronym NIMBYism or NIMBY? Yeah, of course. The not in my backyard phenomenon. So now you have people that the significant portion of their net worth is tied up in their house. And now you've got a local state assembly person or state senator or or city council person that wants to propose, let's say, a more advantageous for labor dynamism policy, like let's increase housing supply or let's put more money into public transportation because that's going to create jobs because it's going to get people to, it's going to increase labor mobility and get more, a wider pool of available labor for our economic activity. And you have people that are homeowners that are voting down or voting against those because they will drive down the value of their property, which is where the majority of their net worth is tied. What you were saying about nimbyism reminded me of something else. This this other point that is connected to this, but I haven't quite made heads or tails of it, which is that home value appreciation is a privilege enjoyed disproportionately by white Americans. Okay. There's the racial proxy hypothesis, okay, which is that there it's this ongoing study. Pe- people would prefer to live in white neighborhoods. This goes for white people and it goes for non-white people. Home values go up in white neighborhoods. The whiter a neighborhood is, the high, the quick, more quickly its value appreciates. Right? Again, it's true for white people, true for non-white people. And so what the studies are trying to determine is is this truly a kind of racist um, phenomenon or does this have to do with all of the other things that might be associated with living in a white neighborhood lower levels of crime better schools right and read studies both ways but the most recent study i read is that like no it it has to do with race that when you correct when you find a kind of integrated community that has good schools that has low crime the people there still have a negative opinion of their community purely because there are non-whites living there. Like there's nothing else to create the perception that it's not a good community. That's troubling. Have you heard of um, residential segre- residential segregation? No. The idea is that the, the, the trope that schools in white neighborhoods are better schools. Mm-hmm. Is it the school's that made the neighborhood white or is it the white that made the schools good? Right. And the conventional or not maybe conventional, I think the, the easy answer is that white people have certain kind of cultural uh, uh, traits and certainly economic advantages that are kind of locked, like regionally locked in and the good schools are just one, um, one emergent property of the white neighborhood. Right. But there's some research that says that when a a white tide raises all boats, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the title of the show. There's some research though, that says that, okay, you've got a new, you've got a new planned real estate development Uh and you plan the school before you sell the real estate because you want the real estate values to be higher. So this is a phenomenon that's occurring in some places, particularly areas where there's a lot of new development. Okay. So you say, okay, we're going to 
we're going to get approval for a charter school. We're going to like recruit some really great teachers. Mm -hmm. And then we're, as we're developing this community and like this real estate development, and then we're going to market that it's got a great school and that will drive the value of these homes and give us a higher return on our investment for the real estate development. And what they found was it's not that uh, white people are there first and then those white people put more, you know, donate more money to their school and hire better teachers and then send their kids to the schools. It's that white people, it's almost like if you imagine it like a relay, like a, like a race, mm -hmm. not like, not like an ethnic race. Like I'm talking about like right, a foot race, like mm -hmm. a, like a, like a um, yard dash, like a re 30 yard dash, right? That if white people from an economic standpoint have a head start, they have higher job mobility they have higher cap, they have like higher levels of capital in order to be able to invest in a new house, a new neighborhood to move their family for better opportunity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The easy thing to do is say that there's like this big fat cat mobster that's like controlling it and like going like, oh, black person, throw it in the trash can, Mexican person, throw it in the trash can. Ooh, nice white family approved. That's not how it works. How it works is they go, we've got a new community. It's got a great school. The houses are going to be worth a lot of money. Mm, right. And then the, the people that, have the means and the uh, information and the willingness to uproot their lives in order to give their family a leg up are generally white people that already have a head start in terms of capital savings, right, right. net worths, et cetera. So that doesn't make it any less troubling, mm -hmm. but it's less of a, I get really uncomfortable with the idea that there's like, I was gonna say like a fat cat mobster. Maybe it's to be like a, a like a Jeff Sessions clone, right? There's like an old uh, an old racist from Alabama that's like named after a Civil War general. It's just like declining <laughs> right. Right. Uh, applications of of people of color, and I don't. That happens, you know. It happened with Donald Trump's dad, but um, <laughs> it's not the rule. The rule right. is that there are other systemic I advantages that we are have. going to talk more about this in our race pod uh, episodes because it's similar to affirmative action in colleges right that you don't believe that there's some like admissions counselor going like nope you don't get in but when a school doesn't have an affirmative action policy and it's just like we'll just take the best people coincidentally the best people end up being white people and this has been borne out in the evidence right because those white kids went to majority white schools right. that were that they were able to go to because white people had the economic mobility to go to the place where the schools are good it's all related to I one know. another it's like this big opportunity tornado you know the the sticky like i've got i'm covered in vaseline and i'm in the tornado room with all the money flying around and i'm like <laughs> sticking it to my body it's like that but for opportunity right the, so another thing i want to talk about that's kind of related to this is so now I've heard this from almost everyone I know who has recently bought a house, maybe bought a house in the last 10 years or so, is you have to write a letter to the previous homeowner. Mm, yeah, I've heard that too, yeah. And now realtors are telling people, you have to write a letter. You have to write at least one letter. They're like coaching. And it would really be good if you included a picture. Whoa. That is setting the system up for racism. Yeah. And again, maybe it's not a conscious racism, but the white family who owns that house now, because statistically a white family is more likely to own a house yeah. than a non-white family, is going to look at this picture and go like, oh, look at this young family. Look at this young Daze family. They look just like us when we moved in here. Right. Let's give them the house instead of this creepy interracial couple that keep sure. on us, right? Which is also an interesting economic distortion because you would think that people would want to just garner the highest purchase price for yeah. an asset. 
I mean, it'd be the equivalent of saying like, I want to sell three shares of Disney stock. Can you send me a letter and a picture of the broker that wants to buy my stock? Like, no, it's super inefficient and super prejudicial and maybe not even along race lines. It's just like an inefficient way to conduct an economy. Exactly. Um, And what, I, I, I don't understand it because what difference does it make to you who lives in your house and what they do to the house after you're gone? You're selling the, you're selling it. Yeah. I think it probably originated as a way for cute white people to get one tiny leg up on a transaction. Unattractive white people. <laughs> yeah, probably. At the moment, you this has been enlightening, but I'm still leaning towards pushing for the elimination of the mortgage tax deduction. And it sounds like you're kind of on board with that, at least philosophically. Yeah. Here's the thing that's pushing me in the opposite direction, which is that it is a deduction for middle-class people. No, it's not. What do you mean, no? 73% of, quote, in 2013, 73% of the $70 billion of the mortgage interest deduction went to the wealthiest 20% of earners. Get out of here. All right. There's nothing then that is saving this for me. 15% went to the richest 1%. The poorest 20% who rarely own homes got essentially nothing. Well, yeah, I would expect that. But this is a middle, middle class. class no. the, the, so 70% of $70 billion is going to the 73% richest. 73% of $70 billion went to the wealthiest 20% of earners. Well, then I would flip, I would eliminate that certainly, that portion of the tax credit. Absolutely. And I know that those people have homes that cost more than a million dollars or have mortgages that are more than a million dollars. So it's not like we're subsidizing the interest on their entire house, but they're still receiving uh, a financial incentive to do what they would have done regardless. Yeah. Furthermore, you're probably encouraging people to buy more home than they can afford because of the interest deduction. Which is why I'm not necessarily heartbroken that the value of homes would go down 7%. I mean, that is significant, but... I think that it would put the market closer to reality in terms of what a person, what house a person could actually afford. The way I view it is that like societies can choose a stable track over a long period of time or an unstable track. And the unstable track looks a lot like the French Revolution. We touched upon this last time, right? right? Where you can say, well, I'm wealthy. I don't want anyone else to be wealthy. I want to maximize the return on my investment. Therefore, I'm going to advocate for and vote for policies that disproportionately advantage me. I'm going to exercise an, uh, an outsized amount of political clout in the arena, and I'm going to um, basically try to maximize my investments. And the cost of that is increased income inequality mm-hmm. that usually reaches a social or a social or emotional breaking point that causes either best case scenario, economic crashes, crises, um, recessions, and depressions. Worst case involves uh, gathering up the French royal family and chopping their heads off with a guillotine, <laughs> at which point everything's kind of re-equalized until the cycle repeats itself. Uh-huh. And I don't want anyone to get their head chopped off. I don't want rich people to get their head chopped off. I don't want poor people to get their head chopped off. And I think, therefore, it is in even the wealthies. Like, is the 7% delta on the value of your home worth not only the human suffering that it may cause directly or indirectly, but also worth the risk to your future or your children's future at an unstable political system. And you're still coming out ahead. It's just how far are you ahead? And when we're dealing with single digit percentage um, growth, it's really, you're really splitting hairs. And therefore I think people should be uh, encouraged to take the more simple track, but people very often don't do that. People, Say, no, I want my return now. I've got this year's taxes to claim. 
Um, and the people that make out the best are the people on the very slow moving sine wave of political stability in the world, right? Are the people that can be born and die maybe <laughs> yeah. at, the, at the crest or at the peak right. of a wave, right? And that happens because these wa- the frequency of these wavelengths are in s- maybe a centuries. Right. But it really sucks to be the person at that flipping point. But there are people in America particularly that were, let's say, born in the 1940s and got to like just barely miss uh, you know, active service military duty right. and like that <laughs> risk, right? But came of age in the fastest growing boom in history and they're 70 now and maybe they'll die tomorrow and maybe they'll die in the 2020s. But like, yeah, things are getting a little weird, but generally speaking, they made out pretty great in terms of economic growth, political stability, increasing equality, et cetera. Right. But like, I'm worried about the kid born today. Right. And what they're going to go through for the next 70, 80, 90 years. Yeah. I agree with you, but I am always reluctant by any, you know, view that's like, Oh, they had it so good. I don't know. Part of me thinks that everyone has it the same amount of good and everyone has it the same amount of bad. <laughs> You're I really shaking disagree. your head. I really disagree. I mean, that's the way it should be. That's that's like a really deeply political, that's like a deeply philosophical goal that I think we, should also, we all should strive for. I'm just wary of any kind of back in my day kind of thinking. In either direction. Back in my day, we had it so tough or back in my day, we had it so good. Yeah, I mean, tell that to a... a British person that lived in Victorian England versus a British person that lived in the kind of economically depressed 1945 to 1975 period, right? Yeah. In that way, it was back in my day, it looked pretty good. The thing is people, what we're fighting against is the nostalgia effect that like universally the past is better than the future. That's right. that's a worldview that is empirically false, but you can't actually measure economic, you can measure any number of KPIs and say economic activity, job growth, inequality, death, you know, death from warfare, whatever, right. and actually see changes yeah. in either in individual countries or in continents or in world, in the entire world yeah. and say, ah, oh, something went really wrong here. You can take that highlighter and highlight the 1930s and 40s and go, ooh, (laughs) scary face emoji. And so like policy, the thing too that drives me crazy, and I've said a version of this so many times before, we treat this stuff like it's an asteroid from outer space. Couldn't have done anything about it. It just happened. It caused so much pain and suffering. And that's almost always not true, Right. right? If you, with the exclusion of things like major droughts and famines, pandemics like the Spanish flu or polio, or malaria. Like those are things that happen no matter what. Nobody, there's no scientist in a lab that created malaria that's right. killing people, right? And that does cause real suffering. But then look at the cultural revolution in China in the 1960s mm-hmm. or look at uh, the gulag regime in the Soviet Union in the 1940s and 50s. Look at um, racial segregation in the United States uh, in the right. 17th, 18th, 19th and a lot of the 20th century. Um, These are things that are like policies. These aren't asteroids. These are laws that people are voting for that are causing pain and conflict and and death in some instances. And they're so utterly avoidable. And people don't treat them that way. They treat them like acts of nature. Yeah. Kills me. Yeah. So do we, are we now conservatives? (laughs) The mortgage interest deduction. It is culturally conservative. Mm-hmm. We want heterosexual families with lots of little kids <laughs> growing up on patches of grass and going to church and uh-huh. barbecuing, right? And that is a culturally and socially conservative vision that the mortgage interest deduction helps foster. 
But then if you want to look at an economically conservative view, it's that this is a regulation, this is a tax loophole, yeah. this is adding complexity to the system, and it's arguably not even really helping the thing that it is ostensibly designed to help. Right. Therefore, get rid of it, right? And you just see Rand Paul going, cut the regulations, cut the red tape, get but rid of it. this is the one, this is one of two deductions he would keep. No, Paul Ryan would keep. No, Rand, Rand Paul, Paul oh, in really? his presidential campaign, you know, wanted to cut all deductions except for two, this one and... Charitable deduction? Charitable? Yes. Charitable giving? Well, that's the part of the Ryan Brady tax reform plan, which is being going presumably to be debated after the healthcare fiasco. This has been Robot F. Kennedy. I'm Eddie Quintana. I'm Nick Daze. If you like what you hear, go tell a friend to subscribe to Robot F. Kennedy, or at least listen to one of our episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Robot F. Kennedy, or subscribe to us and or subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. We made a promise oh, last yeah. time, uh, and we have one new review. I don't know who it's from, but I kind of have a guess. So, five-star review on July the 12th, 2017, by a user named Not a Doctor But Good Enough. And the review says, As he did with music, Nick Daze is opening my mind to new possibilities with this podcast. EQ, I think that's a reference to your initials, Eddie Quintana. Or the equalization of the podcast. Should just change his initials to IQ to be more accurate. <laughs> End of review. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you, not a doctor, but good enough. That was a great review. Everyone, if you rate us uh, and review us on iTunes, we will read your review on the air so long as there are no uh, racial epithets. <laughs> epithets? Epithets. Right. Epitaphs? Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> Here lies Eddie Quintana. He was a lazy blankety blank. <laughs> it's a racial epitaph. All right. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>